This is the Portland Real Estate Podcast, your number one place for anything you need to know about the Portland real estate market, along with in-depth interviews from our local real estate industry experts. Now, without further ado, here are our hosts, Tucker Merrihew from TTM Development Company and Steve Nassar from Premier Property Group. All right, everybody out there in Listenland, welcome back to episode 33 of the Portland Real Estate Podcast. We are back again this week in our virtual studio. As always, I'm your host, Tucker Merrihew, with our co-host, Steve Nassar. What's going on, Steve-o? Tucker, hey, great to be back on the show. It is a gorgeous, gorgeous week here in the Rose City, and we have a great program for everybody. On the heels of what was a very, very successful show last week, yeah, I think Randy did a fantastic job. He obviously is a big draw. We got a, a huge number of listens on last week's show. I do have to applaud him. I think he gave a great interview, and I think we talked about a lot of really cool stuff. Yeah, he was incredibly sharing. He he really threw out there everything he does, why he does it, what makes sense to him, and, and that was very generous of him. And I, I know our listeners and those that are in the trenches doing something similar to him or want to do something similar to him or just those on the the sidelines like myself who are just in the real estate game, it's great to see and hear what what works and why it works and the logic behind it. Yeah, and I also really enjoy guests that actually give us their real opinion about stuff. Yeah. <laughs> there, was, there wasn't a lot of sugarcoating. It wasn't bad at all, but he truly had an opinion about a lot of different things, and it makes for good conversation, and I think our listeners probably enjoyed that a lot as well as us. So Absolutely. But moving on, we've got another great show this week. But before we dive into it, it's going to be kind of a market action report along with a few pretty interesting articles that uh, we're going to talk about that have been related to Portland here and then obviously elsewhere in the nation as well that we kind of looked at before the show that we think everybody out there in Listenland would enjoy. Before we get into that, what's been going on with you over the last week, Steve, within your biz? You know, I'm actually going to go two weeks back, Tucker, because we didn't really have this segment last week because we were focused on our interview with Randy. On the broker side, I, as a broker or agent, as most of the country calls us, by the way, (laughs) and I I learned this at an event in San Antonio, I was fortunate enough, had the privilege of being invited by Zillow to a very exclusive invite-only event in San Antonio, Texas, two weeks ago. It was about 300 of their top agents who have large teams, really understand their product and utilize it well. And so we got to go. There was a lot of inside information, a lot of exciting changes coming, and just kind of a, hey, here's what's working, guys, and a lot of synergy and and sharing. Really, really cool event. It was fun to go to San Antonio. I'd never been there before. The river walk there is just phenomenal. I even got to go to a Spurs game. And it was just a really, really cool event. And I I found out while I was there, this was an interesting thing. As I was there, I I was like, I wonder how San Antonio compares in size to Portland. So I Google San Antonio and then I Google Portland Metro. They're within 100,000 of each other. They're almost identical in size. It was pretty interesting to find out. But anyways, while there, you know, Zillow had a lot of cool things to say. One of the things I appreciated was they came right out and said, look, there's never going to be a day 30 years from now where buyers are going to go online click on a house and a self-driving car is going to come pick them up and then they're going to go to the house. They're going to click a few buttons on their smartphone and suddenly they own the house and no realtor was needed. I mean, they're very, very pro agents and pro, you know, what we do. And they understand, you know, that they said the simple reason for that is twofold, two independent reasons. One, a real estate transaction is so complicated And then two, it's so expensive. And for those two reasons, it's just they truly feel that the realtor will always exist. Now, the roles have changed and and continue to change. And 
as technology has come into play, what everyone is finding out, and, and, and this isn't new, is that consumers are doing the searching on their own oftentimes for weeks and months before they ever want to go into a house and are really serious in the market. So that's where a powerful online site like Zillow that has 250 talented engineers and software developers and employees, they've got billions and billions of dollars. They're really honing in and trying to create the universal marketplace, almost like, you know, you think about Google and Facebook. I mean, I don't know about you, Tucker, but I mean, I don't search for things online outside of Google very often or use social media outside of Facebook very often. And so Zillow is quickly and has been for some time been developing and moving in that direction and getting better and better and better so that I predict and they predict that within the next five years or so, there just won't be many other online search sites that can compete with them and all consumers will gravitate towards that one. So a lot of really exciting stuff going on there. I'd love to chat more about it, but we don't have time. On the brokerage side, man, we are just opening new office after new office. To be clear, not all of them are a brand new existence, but they're a replacement of an existing one. Our leasing agent, Brian Wise, we are just keeping him so busy. I mean, for example, our Lake Oswego office, we have an offer out for a property to lease right across the street from it. We're going to add probably about 40% square footage there. We did sign on the dotted line for a Newburgh office, which I talked about previously on the show. We're also moving our West Portland office. It's in the Bethany area. Same building. We just needed more square footage. And actually, we're going from like the third floor to the ground floor, which is nice. We're also getting a ground floor. This is a new office we are opening up in the Lloyd District downtown, which is kind of our first downtown Portland office. So we're pretty excited about that. It's on the ground floor. It's, I think, eight, 9,000 square feet. It's right off the 84 exit. That's a big great office. Vis- yeah, great visibility. So we've got a lot of expansion going on for PPG and a lot of good stuff. How's so that, your means, world? You, that means you guys are probably going to be adding a, a number of new agents as well, I assume, huh? We're almost to 600 right now. Wow. Yeah. That's um, And just, I think last time you told me that, does that make you guys the biggest brokerage in we Portland? We will be this summer. Okay. By this summer. Remax is number one currently, and they have about 620. But and aren't they we are, each, is Remax individually owned each office, or are they corporate owned? They're owned out of Colorado, believe it or not. They okay. sold... In the last 12 months, the ownership sold to some owners out of Denver, I believe. So, yeah. Okay. So, but we're hiring about 20, 30 people a month. So it's it seems like it's not going to be too long. It yeah, no, you guys are on a, a big expansionary path. That's for sure. It's cool to see. Yeah, we'll have a good party for that. <laughs> oh yeah, I bet, I bet. Well, cool. Well, yeah, things are cruising along real well for us. We're obviously uh, we had to record a little early today. Because I have to go meet with our architects. We're trying to break ground on our townhome project in first edition. But in between actually creating these plans, getting the partition completed, and getting the plans reviewed, they changed some of the design restrictions yet again. And so we've got to go back and we've got to make some tweaks. And i got to meet with the architect this morning. So it just seems like the front end of these projects is just never ending with the amount of work that has to be done before we can actually break ground. Which is, I know in one of the articles that we're going to talk about as well, it's a big gripe that a lot of builders have been having. A lot of understaffed permit offices plan reviewers, just uh, the cities are generally understaffed all the way through and they have questionable (laughs) workers in a lot of spots that are staffed. So it just creates a bottleneck, creates really poor customer service for the most part. And, um, you know, there's just a lot of frustration out there. So we're, we're not immune to that. We obviously are experiencing it as well, but hopefully we'll be breaking ground very shortly with our townhome project. The partitions are completed. We've got a, a, a public sewer main extension we've got to do 
before we can actually pour foundation or do any excavation for the actual units themselves. But we'll hopefully get started on that next week. Beyond that, we actually have one of our projects that we're almost finished with listed. And I thought it'd be a good little story to tell everybody out there in listener land as far as if you're going to take a run at a new construction project that's not done yet, here's kind of some how-tos, right? How to actually make it work out in your favor. So we had a guy that put an offer in on one of our projects that's not finished. It's probably two to three weeks away from completion. It's a million plus dollar home, but he decided to write an offer at $100,000 under what it's listed at, which is obviously a pretty light offer in any arena, really. And so he had a first realtor that wanted he wanted them to write it for him. They declined because they I know them and, and I respect what they were doing, but they basically didn't want to show us such a ridiculous offer before we were even completed with the project. And so I think that agent actually refused to write it. And so this buyer, being as stubborn and ridiculous as he probably was, kicked that agent to the curb and fired him or her. And so then she, that buyer went and found another agent within the next day or two. And then had that agent who was willing to write the offer, put it in front of us. And, uh, you know, here's just the psyche of a builder, right? Number one is if we're not done with a project, we're not going to take a huge haircut on what we're going to sell it for, first and foremost. As it turns out, this guy couldn't afford anymore, but I'll get into the story of the picture they were trying to paint here. But we met with the individual originally, and we like to get a gauge on people. And so this was the guy that wanted a huge discount, but he also wanted everything else as well. He wanted to be the biggest pain in our butt that you could possibly be in terms of punch list, extras, this, that, everything else. And it's like, you know, if you want a deal to work out and you want to come in light on an offer, number one, don't be the guy that wants everything in the kitchen sink and you want a huge discount. It's just not going to work, especially when a project's not even done. But number two is, you know, on a million plus dollar home, commissions are fairly sizable. If you really want to write an offer that's that low, my suggestion to you is maybe contact the builder directly to see if you can bridge the gap. Now, you're giving up a lot to do that. So I'm not advocating that you cut realtors out of the deal. But if money is your main objective in saving and not other things, you know, it might be in your best interest to try and go to the builder directly if you're comfortable doing that. And this guy prided himself in being in construction and being comfortable with all that. But yet he still elected to just go find another realtor to write the offer. And, you know, I respect the other realtor. They have to work for their clients. I get it. But they sent me this long cover letter basically trying to tell me that my valuation was wrong and this and that. And mind you, this is an out-of-town buyer. This is a house. I live right around the corner. I know what things are worth. I know what things are selling for. I know what the inventory is. I've lived there for over two years. We were building there for the last 15 years almost. So I get it. So when somebody comes in from an outside market and then tries to script something with the help of a realtor telling me why I don't know what the values are in a certain area and then using, you know, skewed comps to try and justify their opinion, does nothing but irritate you. You know, you're better off just coming in light. Don't try and tell me I'm stupid and come in light. That, that's just not a good way to start it off. So bottom line is we rejected the offer. Lo and behold, I did a little additional digging. The buyer couldn't afford anymore, and he was probably coming in a little too high anyway. He probably should have bought slightly lower price point. It would have just been a better, I think, buy for him and just a more comfortable situation moving forward. But it tends to happen a lot when people stretch their price to what they can afford to the absolute max. And then tensions get stressed. Finances get stressed. It just creates a stressful transaction all around. So I'm a big advocate of buying what you can afford and not pushing that all the way to the ceiling sometimes because it's just it, it's not good for anybody at least I don't think so so anyway property's still on the market we're about two weeks away from being done if we don't get a, a solid contract in hand I'll probably pull it off a week before we're completed and then we'll relist it once it's completed as a finished product which does make you know these higher end homes a lot easier to sell and I get it it's hard for people to sign on the dotted line on a million plus dollar home when it's not finished because you don't know what it's going to be a lot of times so 
I totally get that. But either way, I thought it'd be a good story to kind of talk about. On another note, we did just list our spec home on Noss Road, uh, right around the corner from last year's Street of Dreams. The house is framed. It's actually turned out really well. It's a variation of the house that I live in. I think it's it's turning out absolutely amazing. It's going to be a fantastic home. So we just listed that. It's on Noss Road. If you pull it up on uh, RMLS, Redfin, Zillow, whatever, you'll notice it. We listed it at 1995 which is a tremendous deal. It sounds like a lot of money, but there's a similar priced home, actually exactly that price, that's about 1,000 square feet less that's also new construction that's pending. So you get a lot of house. You get a, a half-acre lot, which is fantastic fantastic area. So that's going to be a really amazing home. So if anybody out there in listener land has a buyer interested, I can tell you that that's a remake of my own home. So it's going to be fantastic when it's done. Is it completely done or is are you no, still we're, early? We're framed. We're doing rough in electrical plumbing HVAC right now. Uh, so we're probably three months away from completion on that. Got it. Got it. And then, you know, on another front, we actually are going to be doing, uh, we've got kind of a big disparity in the type of projects that we're taking on right now, but we got a, a lead in that we're going to be buying in about a week, and it's going to end up being kind of an entry-level rehab in the Foster Powell neighborhood. It, it just was too good of a deal to pass up, and uh, we're going to put it out probably right about that 300000 mark, and it's going to be three bedrooms, one bath, which... As you know, Steve, that's the battle axe price point for closer in Southeast. So, you know, we're going to do it. It'll, uh, it'll be a good project for us. It'll keep our guys busy. And it, it'll be one of those products that when put into the market, you know, there'll be a flurry of activity, I'm certain. So we got a lot going on. Pretty cool. And then to top it all off, you know, I know I've talked to you this with you on the show here before and then offline as well. But, man, I tell you what, the uh, production crews are out in full force these days. We have been romanced by more production companies trying to put us on TV lately than um, I can count. I actually had one that I had to blow off this morning because they were late to their call, and we've got to record this. Uh, but uh, we've got a pretty cool idea that we're kicking around with one of them in terms of a new type of show. Because like I talked to you about offline before, we don't want to do a show that's kind of a remake of an existing plan of other shows that have been done. If we do TV at some point, I want it to be a show that's new to the real estate space, kind of a new structure, a uh, little new dynamic. And I think those shows have the chance to be the biggest hits or the biggest flops. But hopefully if we did it, it would be the biggest hits. So, Are they local companies? No, none of them are local. They're all usually LA, New York, bigger markets. But they produce the shows, obviously, and then they hook up with whichever network they're trying to produce for. Hmm. So. So we're, we've got an idea right now that's kicking around. It's, it's similar to if you've seen The Profit or Billion Dollar Buyer, similar to that type of structure. And it goes into kind of our real estate investing side of the business and not so much the flip or flop or fix this house or, you know, things like that. So love, both, I love the show The Profit. Yeah, it's a great love show. It. That and Shark Tank are both some of my favorite TV shows on TV. They, they just make you smarter and they're such good wisdom on those shows. Yeah. yeah. And that's, if we're going to do TV, that's what we want to do. We want to kind of educate and entertain. We don't want to just fill you with mindless, okay entertainment. So I'll keep posted, but that's what's going on with me over the last uh, week or so here. With that being said, maybe uh, let's jump into our market action report. Do you want to kick it off and tell us where did inventory come out this month? Because it's a little crazy. Yeah. So, well, the inventory is low. It's 1.3 months, which is from what I can see here, is one of the lowest. I think December was just was the only lower month, 1.2 months. And it seems to me like the reason for that isn't necessarily the closed sales as much as it was just not a whole lot of new, new inventory coming on. If you look at the data here, February of 16, there was 5.2% less homes on the market than March of 2015. So just newer homes were coming online. But it was a little bit of a cooler month. It's not the breakneck 
records that we've been seeing as of late. It's the best March since 07. Again, I mean, we've said this before. We've had month after month where we were seeing the best month ever in RMLS history. So when you see a month that is the best month in nine years, you figure there was a little bit of a let up. So it's still very, very solid. And we're seeing good activity on our end. Our listings are doing good. I think I feel, you know, I always gauge it by, I meet with my buyer division weekly and my listing division weekly, and I can usually gauge the shifts. And I feel like my, I know the weeks where my buyer's division is just singing the blues and crying into their beers because (laughs) every offer, there's 10 of them. And as good as they are, and as much as they try to set our buyers up for the best possible chance of success, the more offers there are, the, the harder that is, and it's there's no guarantees. So I feel like they've been getting more into escrow the last few weeks, but it's still tough out there. There is still a lot of multiple offer situations. Along those lines, I've seen a couple interesting articles recently, and they're the first of their kind, and, and they're by no means doom and gloom. I don't want to insinuate that at all, because I think these are very specialty markets. And within those markets, this is talking very much about the high, high end. And this one is on CNBC. I just noticed, I think, yeah, this came out the 14th. So in the last week, and the subject is Miami real estate is melting down. And what it's saying here is- That's quite a headline, right? It it was, it it grabbed me. (laughs) So you can see why I read it. And what it says is that The average sales price in Miami and nearby Barrier Islands, which is a very high-end area, was down 7.5% year over year. So this is the first I'm hearing of any area in a noteworthy fashion having a flatline or a downward pressure. Not in any way saying that's coming here. I do think, though, a couple things. First of all, I think Portland is insulated. Our big thing, I mean, we're the hot ticket right now. In fact, when I was in San Antonio talking with agents all over the place, I mean, that was one thing many people were saying is like, wow, a lot of people are moving to Portland. And there was a really high opinion of Portland and and all that we have going on here. So I think we're somewhat insulated because of that. As long as people keep moving here, then our real estate market is going to be insulated from some of these other places. Now, does that mean, though, that if the other rest of the country starts to have a downturn, that people can't unload their houses there so they can buy and move here? Sure, that can have an impact. And the other thing is just perception is reality. If I'm a homeowner, if I'm a seller in Portland, Oregon, and I've kind of been kicking around the idea of putting my home on the market, and you know, and I'm just tooling around on CNBC, and I see this article, don't you think that makes me motivated to get my house on the market? And if you do that, you know, person after person after person, you could see us, you could see a rise in inventories here in Portland with people trying to time the top of the market, which is, you know, what inherently people try to do. And a a spike in inventory would definitely soften the market and have an impact. So it'll be interesting to see what comes out of this. If we're going to see other hot pockets that start to slow down. I mean, this to me, this is really reminiscent of the last downturn. We know that they overbuilt the condo market in Florida, and that was one of the huge trouble areas. So was Vegas, Phoenix, Southern California. Basically, the Sun Belts is where things tend to start and end. A lot of those are boom and bust markets, you know. Phoenix, of course, California, it seems like it's either going up or it's going down. It's just, it's one of those. And then Miami, obviously, that headline is trying to get viewers, right? They're trying to get you to read so that they can sell you on the advertising or get you to start to follow that column or whatever. I think that a meltdown at 7% year over year, I wouldn't call that a meltdown. I might call that a small market correction in the, in the higher end market there that they're talking about, which is 
you know, high-end condos. But Miami was, in all fairness, uh, kind of the mecca for being overbuilt condo-wise back in the bust. In the last boom bust, they just built way too much. And especially at that higher price point, there's just not a lot of buyers in Miami. They're going to be outside buyers coming in. And so, you know, when that faucet of outside buyers becomes a trickle and the inventory goes up, well, guess what happens? Prices go down. It's just kind of the way it works. And so I think you're right. You know, we got 1.3 months inventory that came out this month. That's low. I mean, 1.2 months is the nearest, you know, the only lower number on the whole board that you can see on these market action reports right now that go back all the way to the beginning of 2014. And, you know, I think that that's going to insulate us for a while. We're not going to jump, you know, up to five months, six months inventory anytime soon. Although, you know, I will say that new listings were up 17.7% in March. Pending sales were only up 10.4%. So new listings did outpace pending sales, which is a forward indicator that inventories should go up to some extent as we come out with April numbers. I don't see how it can go down. It's 1.3 months. But, you know, we'll probably bounce back up a little bit. I don't know how high. Uh, but it's going to take time. You know, we have an inventory supply issue here in Portland. We also have a lot of people moving here. Like you talked about, Portland's the hot ticket, right? I was in Scottsdale a couple weeks ago, and uh, I randomly meet this guy, and he says, oh, I'm flying to Portland in the morning. And it's like, when I lived in Colorado and went to school there and then moved back here after school, I didn't know one person that was coming to Portland unless they had family here or something like that. People, It wasn't a destination place to go to. It was kind of the sleepy little town, which... Now it's not. Now we're a destination place, which, you know, I think goes nicely to the next article that I want to talk about in terms of I always talk about how people here in Portland are not really not everybody, but there's a small nucleus that are not embracing the change that's going on here in Portland. And so the hotter real estate market kind of accentuates a lot of the changes that are going on. And and the, you know, the constraint on housing is obviously created. You know, uh, we have a housing shortage. We have all these headlines that then get people riled up. And we as developers and builders kind of feel the brunt of that sometimes from fellow Portlandians who, uh, you know, feel like they need to tell us how it is and how we're destroying their vision of what Portland should be. And so there was an interesting open letter from a landlord to a few Portland tenants. And it was an opinion piece done by the Oregonian. We'll put it in the show notes. But I thought it was it was obviously done out of with a lot of spite, which I can understand because we take a lot of crap from people in Portland that really have no idea. You know, they don't have an econ major. They're not a business owner. They haven't been in real estate, all things that I have. So I understand why things do what they do. These are purely just opinions that people have generally against any form of redevelopment. And so this guy, you know, he wrote this open letter. He's doing a redevelopment on an older building it looked like it was probably a multi-unit building that he's turning into, you know, nicer, newer apartments. And so he put some ads up to rent them and he got a lot of people responding or he got somebody responding with some explicitives and, and not very nice things that they said about him basically causing the problem and being exactly what Portland doesn't need, which is a capitalist, I guess, somebody who's trying to improve the housing. And so he responded with, Basically, a lot of good points, but he also made a, you know, he was a little bit insulting, which I can understand why. I don't know how long, how far this is going to go to, to further his point when you come at people insulting him. But on the other side, they were insulting him. So, hey, it's all fair when that's the case. But there was an interesting uh, quote here within the article that said, what's so ironic about your email, and that's the response that he got to one of his ads, I think, to rent one of his units. In addition to its utter disregard for current reality and the powerful lack of thoughtfulness, consideration, and knowledge the very things you think you stand for, is that it makes clear that I'm not the problem here. I'm not the one ruining Portland. You are. 
So he's talking about the fact that he's trying to clean up Portland. He's trying to improve the housing. You know, we have a lot of old housing stock and he's trying to improve it. He didn't knock down this building. He actually renovated it, you know, which kind of goes hand in hand with what a lot of people would rather see because it keeps the the older charm, the fabric of what Portland is. But then he gets people that are just hating on him to hate on him because he's, you know, doing these things and he's redeveloping some of these older properties. And so it's an interesting article. I think it really sums up, you know, a lot of the hatred that people have for anything redevelopment wise. But then it also gives you the other perspective of those of us we're real people that have to deal with this crazy crap that we get from people that really just have an opinion that isn't founded off anything other than the fact that they just don't like capitalism or they don't like redevelopment or or they just don't want to see change, period. Yeah, it was a great article, Tucker. I fully agree with that. So basically, he was speaking specifically. You kind of touched on this, but he bought a building that was about 100 years old. And went to great lengths to preserve it, which you would think would score him some points in Portland, especially as much as we talk about and and hear about people that hate the idea of teardowns, which he could have pushed for. I'm sure he could have added more density. I'm sure he could have had a more efficient building, had less costs. So he had real costs in preserving this building. So then when he turns around and tries to recoup those costs, he starts to get hate mail. I love this one paragraph here. He said, Do you send angry emails to the Mercedes-Benz dealer or to nice restaurants because their offerings remain out of your price range or at odds with your values? Do you act badly when your favorite brew pub raises growler prices because the hops they craft your beer with are more expensive this year? So why hate me? I'm actually one of the good guys. I thought that was such a powerful point to go along with what you said here. So I I love this letter. I think it's important. I think it's great that the Oregonian put it out there. I think a lot of times they're on the other side of this debate, and I think it's really responsible of them to show this vantage point. You know, what I will say, though, is that the Oregonian did take a little bit of a shot at him, even though they published it. They didn't put a picture of the building that he's restoring on there. They put a picture of a massive new building on the front, which obviously solicits emotion out of people. And so I read some of the comments some of the, uh, and this is, this is where a lot of the hate comes from, people. Some of the comments were, that building is atrocious. You should be ashamed of yourself. Well, they were looking at the building in the picture. They didn't even read the article <laughs> and realize that there's no way in hell that's a 1905 building that's being restored with only a handful of units. So, well, Did you read the notes under the, the picture, though? Yeah, I did. It's a low-income building. Right, it's they, called The Yard. It's going to have 284 units designated as, quote-unquote, workforce housing which will be available to those earning up to 60% of the median income in Portland. I think median household income in Portland is about seventy-seven, dollars $80,000. So 60% would be around $50,000, somewhere in there, $45,000. So yeah, they were showing needed housing in the photo versus his. I, yep, good right. point. But people took that as as capitalism at its worst, <laughs> and I don't know if the Oregonian meant it that way. But then there, you know, there's this in small print below it. It's actually the affordable one of the affordable housing buildings going up, and all these people that hate redevelopment are talking about what an ugly building this is, thinking that it's that guy's building. So yeah, you know, there's a lot of irony in this article. I will. The say. comments are fairly positive here. This is the best thing I've ever read on Oregonian Live. Thank you. Great opinion piece. As long as a long. Lifelong progressive. I couldn't agree more. Thank you. I applaud the author. So a lot, there is positive comments. Oh, yeah, there there's, was. there's a little bit of hate, too. But. There, there's always a little bit of hate sprinkled in. It's Portland. But uh, I will say <laughs> it, it, he did re- receive a fair bit of support in the comments, which was nice to see because that to me says, OK, there's not everybody in Portland is out of their friggin mind when it comes to embracing change and, and just watching the city grow up. So 
anyway, interesting article. On the heels of that, there was also another article that I, I sent to you that talked about how the City Club of Portland was basically looking at potentially rezoning some property in some neighborhoods to help with our housing shortage, essentially, so that we can put multiple units where one could be before or more multiple units than maybe two or three could have been before. So basically raising the density of zoning in certain areas to try and accommodate the type of housing that's needed, which is kind of that tweener housing, duplex, triplex, fourplex, which obviously is more affordable than either renting or buying a single family residence in some of these more desirable neighborhoods. So that was kind of an interesting article. You know, you did a little research on the City Club of Portland. I didn't know much about him beforehand, but just for our listeners, what is that exactly? Yeah, no, I hadn't really heard of the City Club of Portland either. So I read this and, and it sounded like, you know, they had, uh, I mean, obviously the Oregonians reporting on it. So I was like, hey, it sounds like they have a little bit of a voice. I wonder who they are. So I, I did a little bit of research. Basically, City Club of Portland is a nonprofit, nonpartisan civic organization based in Portland. It's been around a long time. It was established in 1916, so 100 years old. It has approximately 1,500 members and a paid staff. There's definitely some political ties. I mean, the former mayor of Portland was at one time one of the executive directors. So, yeah, they have a pretty solid voice and they gather, you know, regularly and they discuss Portland issues and then they kind of, you know, leave from there and try to make stuff happen. Well, in this case, they got together and they were pretty resounding. They're like, it was pretty cool stuff, they said. They're basically like, look, we know we have a problem. We need more housing. This statement was pretty cool. Portland's residential zoning code was not brought down on stone tablets from Mount Tabor. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I like that too. (laughs) Yeah, so I mean, they're basically saying like, look, we know it was set up one way to begin with, but that's not carved in stone. That's not sacred. Why can't we retool this to accommodate current needs, which is more housing stock? And so that was their message. It was resoundingly accepted by the group. And They are, you know, trying to push for that. So that was cool. Yeah. And just so that our listeners can kind of quantify what this is all about, you know, we're looking at a property right now that we may buy and at some point redevelop, but it's it's an older single family home that's just kind of on the edge of the Foster Powell neighborhood. And it's an 8,000 square foot lot. It's kind of a smaller, dilapidated older home on it. Well, it's zoned R2. So there could be potentially four units that get put in its place. So now if we build those four units, we have kind of that tweener housing. It's not so expensive, but it's four families, four units that people can occupy, whereas there was one before. So it's kind of underutilized property that is helping contribute to our housing crisis at this point, whereas if it's reused, it's redeveloped, and it's used to the maximum allowability of the zoning, we could potentially have four families that live on that property and not just one. So they're looking to do that on kind of a broader level to really try and help with the amount of inventory that's out there, not only overall, but in terms of the tweener type product that most people are concerned with because they want to be able to rent for a little less. They want to be able to buy for a little less than what single families cost. And so this type of product would allow for that. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, I think those are some good articles that we talked about. I think that, you know, the market action report overall was pretty positive. You can't be the best month ever over and over and over and over again. But uh, 1.3 months inventory, total market time was down to approximately 51 days, which previous month was down 15%. So overall, I think things are doing really well. I don't see us falling off a cliff anytime soon. That's for sure. I think we're pretty insulated. and I think it'll be pretty strong going through the end of this year. Yeah, I totally agree, Tucker. And I guess my thoughts on it is it's not going to last forever. And from a seller standpoint, and that's, you know, for the buyers out there who are frustrated, just keep that in mind, whether that means, you know, some of them might be priced out now, they just need to take a back seat. But 
there still are great opportunities if you're working with the right people out there. But from a seller standpoint, I think that's more critical. You're far, far better off to time early and put your house on the market when there isn't a flat line or a, a softening in sight than you are when that moment happens. When, when the press starts saying, especially local press, if it's affecting us locally, but even on a national level, when you start to see article after article saying, hey, the, the market's changing or the housing is changing. And, and I'm not saying we're seeing that yet, but someday we will. When you start to see it, it's too late to the party. If you put your house on the market, then so is everybody else, and, and you're going to really suffer the losses that you otherwise could have had had you been a little bit earlier in the process. So Yeah, I agree. I, you know, Don't get caught up on chasing the market up because uh, it's far worse to chase it down. So, oh, yeah. You know, <laughs> that, that's something we all learned you know, the first time around or the second time around. So it will soften out there. You know, Like I said, I don't think it's going to fall off a cliff. But, it, of course, you know, markets are cyclical, and they go up, they go down, and right now we're up. Things are yep. good. So, you know, let's enjoy it while it's here. I agree. Cool. Well, this pretty much wraps up episode 33. Before we go, any parting words of wisdom for our audience, Steve? I have no more wisdom. I'm flush out. <laughs> All right. Well, I have think a we... great week, everybody. Enjoy the sunshine. It's supposed to turn here soon. In fact, when this podcast comes out, it may not be here anymore. So I hope you enjoyed it. <laughs> yeah. Enjoy the global warming, everybody. We'll see you guys next week. <laughs> Thanks again for listening to our show, and make sure to tune in next week for another great episode of the Portland Real Estate Podcast.